Good morning, church. If you uh, have your Bibles with you, and while we're waiting for the, for the parents to return, please open them to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and we'll be in verses 16 through 20, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. This is the last sermon in our uh, series on Matthew. But uh, as you turn there, I also want you to pay attention to verses 5 through 10 because we're going to take a look at them as well. They parallel on a personal level the great commission that's given to the church of Christ. And, uh, you know, one of the things that this will do as we finish Matthew and before we move on to, uh, move on to another book, this is going to set the stage the Great Commission, for, for a number of sermons that will be in between. So we're not going to rush right on to our next book, but we're going to take some time and, and look at a few various things that are brought up in the Great Commission. Things like, what is baptism? What does it mean to be a member of a church? What does it look like to be a true disciple? What is the gospel that we take to the nations? What are the, what are the fruit of righteousness? We're going to take a look at those in the coming weeks, just so you know the direction that we're going. But this morning, Matthew 28, verses 5 through 10, followed by verses 16 through 20. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would... Lord, help us to see that this isn't just the last message to your disciples, that this isn't just the words on a page of an old book, but Lord, this is the commission, the mission you have given to us as a church that represents you and follows Christ in this world. I pray that you would help us to see the glorious, wonderful, awesome task that you have called each one of us to do in measure and all of us to do together. I pray that you would help me to preach, Lord, and give us ears to hear and hearts to 
receive what your word has to speak to us this morning. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, every word that comes out of my mouth falls flat to the floor. Apart from you, every truth of your word hits the human heart as a, as a rubber ball onto a block of granite. It flies away. But Lord, your grace and your mercy soften hearts of stone and give life to our dead bodies, to the words, to your truth. And so I pray that by your Spirit, Lord, you would help us all this morning to receive and believe and obey your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last time in Matthew, we took a look at the resurrection. This, what we've just read, is what is born out of the resurrection. And I didn't get to verses 5 through 10, the appearance of Christ to the women at the tomb. But there is something in these verses that leads directly into what for Christians of centuries have called the Great Commission. The great task given to the church is there is a pattern... There's a pattern in verses 5 through 10, and not just there, but everywhere in every appearance of the risen Christ, and it's this. Good news must be told. Good news has to be expressed and proclaimed. Christ is raised. Now go and tell. You see it repeated over and over and over. Every instance in Scripture of the risen Christ results either in people being commanded to go or the church on its own having seen Him going. Matthew 28, 7, we just read, Come, see the place where He lay. Then, right, you, so you see the tomb, it's empty. Then go quickly and tell His disciples He is risen from the dead. Same thing uh, two verses later in verse 10. Jesus speaking to the women. They come, they worship Him. He says, do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see Me. He has a job for them to do. Same thing in Mark 16, 7. But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He's going before you to Galilee. In Luke 24, starting in verse 9, the first thing the women do when they hear that Jesus is risen is they go and they tell the disciples. Later, when Jesus appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus, when they discover that it is the risen Christ who has appeared to them, they immediately turn around, run back to Jerusalem, and tell everyone what they've seen. In Luke 24, 45, when He appears to the disciples, it says, Then, so He appears to the disciples, then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. He says, you're witnesses of these things. And because you have seen them, because you know of them, go and proclaim them in His name everywhere. In John 20, 17, when Mary Magdalene is discovered by Jesus, He sends her to His brothers. He sends her to the disciples to tell them that He is alive. And then when He appears to those disciples in verse 21, He says, Peace be with you. 
as the Father has sent me. So they see the risen Christ. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. In the first chapter of Acts, Jesus ascends to the heavens. And the last thing he says to his disciples is that they will be his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem and going to the ends of the earth. And that's what the whole book of Acts is about. And even the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul in Acts 22, when he recounts when the Lord appeared to him. So Paul sees the risen Christ. He was told, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now this, this is the right response of those who trust in Christ when they see the risen Christ to make it known. And it's motivated, in almost all of these verses, motivated by two things. Right? So if the Great Commission is a, is a plane, these are the two engines that care, keep it afloat, keep it going. Engine one, love for Christ. Engine two, His love for us. You see this in verses 5 through 10. The women worship Jesus. They want to express their love for Him, their affection for Jesus. They're thankful for Him. So what do they do? They cling to His feet. They want to show that they uh, adore their risen Savior and they worship Him. Grab hold of His legs. Fall down before Him. But what does Jesus do? Immediately, He sends them on a mission. He sends them to go out and spread the good news to His disciples. So here we see worship... Worship is more than just a, just a feeling or right thinking or even affection. Worship or true worship is the expression of that affection by doing the will of God. Right? If we love Christ, I mean, how many times have you thought, I love the Lord Jesus, I just want to do something for Christ. That is a good desire. And that, that desire to do something is the playing out of worship in your life. You want to worship Him? There are things He tells you you can do. And so here we see that worship, true worship, is doing the will of God. And nowhere is that clearer than in John 14, 15, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. And everyone who encounters the risen Christ is commanded to go. So if you really want to do something for Jesus, this is it. You love Christ and you desire to worship Him. This motivates the Great Commission. And the second is love of Christ towards them. Towards us. You see the message that the Lord sends to His disciples? It's not like what you or I would be inclined to say were we in his position. He doesn't send the message saying, go to those who in my hour of greatest darkness deserted me, even though that's exactly what they did. Or as, uh, as Hendrickson, the, the commentator, he says over and over in his commentaries, Jesus doesn't send the women to those habitual quarrelers, those who are fighting all the time with one another and arguing. And He doesn't address them as, as these men who promised to remain loyal to Me no matter what, but fled when the crisis arrived. 
He doesn't say, go to those men who without all except for one were absent from Calvary when I was laying my life down for them. Go to that shameful bunch and, and tell them, I have risen. That's not the message that He has for His people. I mean, we might be tempted to say something like that, right? We might be tempted to, uh, to frighten them, right? You, you did this, but I'm willing to overlook it if you really smarten up and get your, get your ducks in a row. Then maybe we can be friends again, but until that happens, he doesn't say that. He doesn't try to wind up their guilt so that they'll come groveling and be motivated by guilt. Right? Because that's what people do. We rub others' failures in their faces in order to motivate them to do what we want them to do. Shame on us. How unlike Christ. Nothing could be further from His heart. You know what He says to these women to go and tell His disciples? He says, take good news. Christ is risen. Good news to my brothers. He calls them His brothers. First word of the risen Christ to these traitors. You are my brothers. He owns them as adopted and fellow heirs. And his message to them is not one of castigation or rebuke, but one of comfort. He loves them. And he will restore them. And all of their sin and guilt has been paid for by him. That's the model in verses 5 through 11. Well, the same thing. Love for Christ and His love for us bookend and motivate the Great Commission. The disciples, in verse 16, they listen to the women and they travel to the appointed place. And when they see Jesus risen in the flesh, they worship Him. Right? The, the, their, their adoration for Christ has to be expressed. They, they need a, a vent for their, their desires. They're overwhelmed. They can't believe it. Right? Sometimes, uh, uh, maybe with your spouse, you, you, you love them so much, you just want to do something to show them that you love them. This is what Jesus is doing to the disciples and what the disciples are doing to them, to Him. They fall down and they worship Him. But some doubt. And that word doubt doesn't so much mean that they doubt whether or not He's risen. It's, it's the same word translated elsewhere as hesitate. And so some of the disciples, they hesitate. They don't know if they should bow down to the risen Christ. This is understandable for a Jew who'd been taught from the time he was little only to bow before and worship the invisible God, never to a man. And so they hesitate to worship. Well, the first words of verse 18 both expel this hesitation so it tells the disciples why they shouldn't hesitate. And it empowers the Great Commission. It says, Jesus speaking to His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Right, the throne of God and the earth, it's His footstool, are under the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. Now, have you ever had to deliver a message? that you knew would be unpopular. You had to deliver a message um, you knew the, 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 where you had to preface it, right? With don't kill the messenger. Or you had to tell people to, you, you need to stop doing what you're doing. 
You know what you always hear when you do that? Almost, almost always. What gives you the right? right? Or who do you think you are? You know what those questions are? Those are questions of authority. What authority do you have to be doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying? What authority do you have to tell me to do anything at all? If the Lord is going to send us out into the world, He knows that we need authorization for the task. And so He gives it. Which is the reason why no Christian goes out on his or her own authority. Paul speaks of this in Corinthians when he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Well, an ambassador doesn't go out on their own authority. In fact, an ambassador has no authority in and of themselves. It's all derived, given to them from the one who sends them. And so the church needs to know on whose orders they go. And we are sent out on the authority of Christ. But what's the extent of this authority? So we're sent out on Jesus' authority. How far does this authority reach? Most authority has limits. I have a certain degree and my wife of authority over our children. I don't have authority over other people's children. The elders have a certain level of authority over this church. We don't have authority over churches down the road. The, even the government. The government has authority within its borders and over its citizens. But once you cross the border into another country, the authority that your government has is very limited. These authorities all, are, uh, all have boundaries. But to Christ, there's an important word there. He doesn't say some authority in heaven and earth. He doesn't say authority in heaven and earth. Three-letter word. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to Him. All without limit, not just over the church, but over all things, things visible and things invisible. His authority is universal. In heaven, He reigns supreme. On earth, He reigns supreme. It's like the psalmist says, the nations are made His heritage and the ends of the earth are His possession. It all belongs to Jesus. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, said, There is not a single square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It all belongs to Him. He owns it all. Now, why does this encourage the Great Commission? Well, for one, He has all authority over the spiritual places. In times past, the Lord allowed the nations to go their own way. They were in bondage to the evil one. They were firmly held in the kingdom of darkness with the prince of darkness as their king. But now he has been defeated and these kingdoms have been given to Christ and he reigns in all spiritual places. And not only does he have authority over the heavenly places, but he has authority over all the peoples of the earth. They all belong to Him. Everyone in this room belongs to Him. Everyone outside of this room belongs to Him. Everyone who has died belongs to Him. And everyone who will be born belongs to Jesus Christ. Now sometimes this confuses people. They say, well, how can Christ have authority over all of these things and yet there seems to be so much that opposes Him? Well, the answer is quite simple. 
This opposition, this kingdom of darkness, has no legitimate authority. It's illegitimate. It's rebellious. I mean, just imagine for a moment a small town in southern New Brunswick. Uh, they, they don't like the direction of the country. They don't like the direction it's going. Maybe you can't blame them, but they don't. And so they declare their independence and they revolt against the provincial and federal government. Would they be legitimate? By what authority could they do this? Zero. They have no authority to do this. They would still be under the authority of the federal and provincial government even though they refuse to recognize this authority. And this is what you have happening in the world. Christ is king over all. But the people and institutions in the world refuse to acknowledge Christ is king. Which is why we're told that they're in rebellion against him. Christ rules and reigns over all and there are some who acknowledge this reign and many who oppose it. His authority is the same in both cases. They are those who have taken up with him and there are those who have taken up against him but he is still king over them all. And this, this changes how you think about evangelism. This is a, a evangelism in one sense is a call for amnesty. Right? You're telling people who rightly belong to the Lord and are resisting Him and with the authority of the Lord behind you to stop this rebellion, to lay down your arms, to stop breaking the laws of the rightful King and come to Him to be pardoned. When you picture it like this, a citadel with impenetrable walls and, and high, strong gates. It's ruled by a ruthless tyrant and the people love it because He lets them do whatever they want without restraint. But then Christ comes against this kingdom and he, he smashes down the gates and he turns the walls into rubble and he captures that tyrant and he binds him and he conquers the city of darkness and cripples the armies of the evil one. And then he says to his church, to those who are loyal to him, now go and plunder this kingdom of its people and bring them out into the light. Not to be put to death. Not to be imprisoned but to be forgiven and reconciled and set free. They belong to me now and I will be merciful to them and I am sending you to get them. And so you see how the Lord exercises this authority not to destroy His enemies and crush them but to save them and reconcile them to God. And the means He uses to carry this out is the church. It's his people, a people who of all people in the world ought to recognize the authority of Christ. He has authority over us. In fact, the word, I don't know if you know this, the word Lord, kurios in Greek, it means someone who owns people. It's so similar to the word master in English, someone who owns people, who demands and has allegiance. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has authority over everyone in this room, me and you. And therefore, because of all of that, we go. And we go, not illegitimately, but we go with the authority of Christ. We who are most clearly under that authority are sent out with the singular task of making disciples. And this is where the emphasis in the commission lies. In fact, in the 
in this command, there's, there's only one command in the Great Commission. And the command is to make disciples. In the Greek, it's the imperative, which is a command. Make disciples. Everything else in this verse is how you do that. How you make disciples. And before we look at how making disciples is done, uh, I do want you to understand this commission is not given to each one of us individually. This is important. This is a commission given to the church collectively. You say, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is you, you simply, you, you see this played out. You can't just decide one day that you're going to go and be a missionary. You must be sent out by the church. And you can't go down to the St. John River and start baptizing people. It must happen in the context of the church. And not many of you were told should be teachers, but the church is called commanded to teach. So no individual takes this on their own shoulders. We all do. And, and so this commission really is about expanding and growing the church and her people and its influence in the world. And we all have roles to play. And we're going to look at some of those roles, Lord willing, next week. But uh, one of the questions to answer before we even take a look at this is, what is a disciple? We are called to make disciples... What are they? You can't make something if you don't know what it is. Well, a disciple is not the same as a convert. A disciple is not the same as someone who professes to be a Christian. A disciple is a learner. Or probably the best word in English that describes Matthias, Math uh, Math some, some of you know. The Greek word for disciple is student. They're a learner. They're someone who hears, understands, believes, and obeys the Word of Christ throughout their life. I mean, in short, there, there are people who are willing in every instance to follow Christ. Right? Not someone who says, I am a Christian, but who hears and follows Him. And there are three steps here to making disciples. One, they have to hear. We have to go to them. They have to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is told to do, right? To go and make disciples of all nations. And so if we do not go with the good news on our lips, no one will be saved. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on Him on the name of the, uh, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching without someone telling them and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news I, I, I really appreciate this verse, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Because very often we think of preaching good news as a, as a burdensome thing. I mentioned this on, on Tuesday night. We, we look at it as almost a, a loathsome task and not a joyful privilege. Um, the word good news. I want you to, I want you to imagine, um, I want you to get a picture of what this word really means. It's the Greek word euangelion. And in ancient times... In ancient times, so if you're in a, an ancient Greek city-state, 
you imagine that there was a, an enemy army marching across the land going to lay siege to your city and kill everybody there. And they have done so town after town after town after town. And there's nothing you can do to stop them. You have one hope. Gather, gather all of the soldiers you can from your city together, all of the men and strong boys, and send them out to go and, and meet this army and stop them from besieging your city. And so you do. Everybody goes. Half of the city goes. They march out. You know, the enemy army's about two days away. They go out to meet them in the city. There's a couple of guards left behind on the walls, but it's mostly empty. And you're waiting to see what will happen. You know, the, the hopes aren't high, but this is your only chance. Nobody's been able to stop this marauding force. Well, you wait anxiously in the city for a day, for another day. You know now the battle's been, been joined. Next day passes, you hear nothing. But the day after that, the watchman on the wall looks out and he sees someone running towards the city. And they got their hands over their head, they're waving. They're trying to get his attention. The, the, the watchman doesn't know. Is, is he trying to get my attention? Does he have good news or does he have bad news? Right? He's coming. Am I going to see the enemy army coming behind him in about 10 minutes? What's he going to say? He can hear him yelling, but he can't make it out. And as the man gets closer, he begins to hear the words, Euangelion! Good news! We've defeated the enemy army. We've, we've, we've vanquished them. Now, everyone in the city is going to live. You don't have to die anymore. The enemy that was going to destroy you has been defeated. I come bearing good news. And so you can understand why Isaiah and Paul later would say, how blessed are the feet that come bringing good news. Soldiers in the army, they used to argue with one another about which one would have the privilege of going to share this good news with the city. You know, if the church is going to be the church, there is a sense where it begins here. Sharing the good news, the gospel with the lost and dying and dead and darkened world. We know we have good news. One of the problems, one of the hindrances that all of you, I think, face at one time or another is there is a slight difference between the, the story I told of the city being besieged and, and what you actually face. The difference is this. The city doesn't want the good news to come. Evangelism, going, sharing the gospel is the front line of the battle. This is where people are pulled from the raging sea into the ark of salvation. This is where captives are taken and lives are lost or won. This is where uh, the, the gates of hell are stormed and enemies are subdued for mercy, where, where light and darkness collide. When you take the gospel and proclaim Jesus Christ to a lost and darkened world. And so is it any wonder that it's one of the most difficult things the church and the believer is called to do. Right? It shouldn't come as a surprise when you really think about what you're doing. Let's not pretend this is easy. And let's not pretend that you are going to reach a certain level where it becomes easy. Nobody, nobody enjoys this. 
there may never come a time where you don't get nervous thinking about it or even fear it. It's a, it's a fearful thing to go to the front line of a war. It's a fearful thing to engage sword drawn with a rebellious kingdom. I mean, it, it is. Why do you think the early church prays for boldness? Why do you think Paul asks them to pray for him for boldness? This is spiritual warfare in its most intense, uh, in its most intense position. Not only that, just on the human plane itself, no one likes to be thought less of. No one likes to be belittled or made fun of, even if they're 70 years old. We don't like to be attacked. We don't want people to think poorly of us. We don't like to be uncomfortable. And we don't like that unspoken thought that crosses the minds of those who may think your good news isn't all that good. That's not an excuse for silence. All right? Then I'm not going to speak about Jesus Christ because people won't like me. It's a call for self-sacrificial courage. It's a call to faith, really, to believe. Blessed are the feet that bring good news. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a call to pray for courage. Because the one thing you need for there to be courage is fear. Right? Courage is what? It's the overcoming of that fear. Not the absence of it. And so pray for courage. And, and don't think you have to wait or, or pray or grow or, or do something to make this apprehension go away before you can share the gospel. You don't have to do that. And Christ will be with you as you go. And you can simply trust the Lord and open your mouth when the opportunity presents itself and tell others what Christ has done for you and tell them what Christ has done for them. That's one of the ways we go to the nations. But another is bringing these people to church. Go ahead, bring them to church. Some people, uh, you know, they make a big deal out of going or coming and doing one and not the other. But the emphasis really is on making disciples, and there are lots of ways you can do that. Sunday morning is, is usually a, as good a time as any. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul speaks of believers being joined uh, regularly by unbelievers in their meetings. So invite people to church or give them a, a tract with a gospel message on it or send them to a, to a sermon, right? Or support missionaries. Supporting missionaries so that the Great Commission can go to places where the gospel's never been heard. We, we support uh, a number of missionaries, and you can see their information out back on the table. And if you're not praying for a missionary or supporting one, I would encourage you to go to the table and take one of those cards and, and see. Uh, Jason uh, is one of them. He's, he's working in Korea. Uh, Brent Risto is another, and he's in uh, northern Canada. But familiarize yourself with the missionaries that this church supports. There's lots of things you can do to advance the kingdom and go to those who are perishing. But make the good news public and compel people to believe it. You have been given the authority of Christ for that task. The work is glorious and of eternal merit. However, if we stop here, we would find ourselves in serious trouble. Because if you stop at evangelism, going to the nations... You have only completed one-third of the Great Commission, and that's like having one leg on a three-legged stool. There are some movements that, that do stop here. They seek only to make converts or only to get professions, just get people to, to say something or make a superficial commitment, and, and some even less than that, right? Close your eyes, raise your hands, welcome into the kingdom. That's not making disciples. The end results are destructive to the body of Christ because one of two things happens. Either genuine sheep are left to starve 
They become food for the wolves and emaciated children, unfed and uncared for. Or these movements produce false converts who are never confronted with enough of the teaching of Christ to even know what an actual disciple looks like, let alone discover that they may not be one. I mean, probably the best example of this today is the, is the church growth movement, so-called. It was born out of good intentions. It really was. The desire of the church growth movement was, how do we evangelize as many people as possible and grow the church? How do we save as many people as we can? Good. That's a good desire. That's a desire we ought to have as believers. But something happened. The desire was divorced from everything else that the Bible tells us about being Christians, about what it means to follow Jesus and about how the church is supposed to function and about its mission and teaching and everything else was ignored for the sake of reaching people. And, and, and you end up with twofold sons of hell who think, yes, I'm good, and they're not safe at all. But it's not just churches like this, and I'm not singling them out to... Uh, for any other reason other than to put them up as an example of, of the danger of this. Because this is a problem we all face all too often. We're satisfied when someone makes a profession of faith. We're satisfied when someone says, I believe. That's not where the work ends. That's where the work begins. Jesus isn't satisfied with that. He wants disciples. And so the Great Commission is more than about just making converts to Christianity. It's about spreading uh, the church and a healthy church and its influence throughout the world. And the second necessary step in the Great Commission is taking those people who confess Christ, who believe the gospel that they hear, and adding them to the church. Adding them to the church. You say, well, where is that in the text? It's right in verse 19. Baptizing them. Baptizing is required. It's commanded for all disciples of Jesus Christ. It's, it's really non-negotiable. And baptism is full of symbolic richness as a sacrament, too, much too much to cover right now. But there are a few aspects of it that are crucial for the Great Commission. So let me give you three of them. First, baptism is a public affiliation with Jesus Christ. Right? The person who confesses Jesus as Lord is required to identify with their Lord in a public, visible way by baptism. So Jesus is saying, you cannot be my disciple unless you publicly acknowledge me. This is throughout Scripture. Jesus says in Mark and Luke, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. And the clearest, most immediate way that we identify with Jesus is by being baptized in His name. Baptism is a public proclamation. I belong to and identify with Jesus Christ. Second, baptism is and always has been the sign of admission to the church. Baptism is to identify with Christ. And if you identify with Christ, you identify with His body here on earth today, the church. So unless you join a church and participate in the communion and the fellowship of the saints, you cannot be a disciple. And I think this is so important in our day because uh, the idea of living in a community together really is under attack. I don't know how many times I hear people say, well, I can be a Christian without being part of a church. Now, I love Jesus, but not organized religion. Listen, that, that is impossible. That's like, Jesus is called the head of the church. That's like saying to someone, well, I love your face, but nothing else. It, it doesn't endear you to somebody. 
Well, in the early church, this kind of thing was non-existent. You cannot be a member of the body of Christ and at the same time cut off from that body. A, a Christian who's cut off from the church, not part of a church, is like a finger cut off from the body. It's not going to survive. It will die. Cut your finger off, throw it away. How long is it going to live? For a Christian to survive, not just to survive, for a Christian to be considered legitimate, a legitimate disciple and not illegitimate, you must be a part of the visible body of Christ. Baptism declares that you are. Third, and not a, a symbol in baptism, but regarding the Great Commission, by requiring people to be added to the church, it reminds us that the church is where disciples are made. The church is where disciples are made and not outside of the church. This is why the Great Commission is a task given to the church and not to the individual. The church is where discipleship happens. It's where there are authorized teachers and leaders and a, and a structure for sanctification and help for uh, the burdens to be carried and mutual accountability and so much more that's necessary for discipleship. And so the Great Commission is a call to go and plant churches, expand the church. And this should be obvious because this is what we see happening throughout the book of Acts. It's not enough, however, just to create converts and then bind them together in community. The most crucial part of being a disciple, the most important part of being a student or a learner is the third step in making one. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I mean, imagine you met somebody and, you, and, uh, and they told you that they were a biologist. You said, I'm a biologist. And you say, oh, really? Where did you go to school? Oh, I never went to school. Oh, well, uh, w what have you read? Have you read, a lot of, have you read a lot of books about being a biologist? I have never cracked a book on anything regarding biology. In fact, I don't know anything about biology. But I thought you said you were a biologist. I am. You see how ridiculous that is? That's how ridiculous it is to say that you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet you've never cracked this book, never learned anything about Him. You can't be a Christian and not a student of the Word of God. A disciple is someone who is taught to observe all that Christ has commanded. And if you stop short of this, you stop short of making disciples, and you stop short of the Great Commission. If a disciple is a learner or a student, there is a subject for them to learn, and the subject matter is the Word, the full counsel of God. Right? Not five or six points that are important. Right? Teach them this and they'll be good. But all that has been given. And not just to teach it, because the teaching in the Bible is always incomplete without the doing of it. Right? Listen, I want you to understand this. Learning and scholarship must never be diminished in the church. It's a command that God has given us. We are commanded to grow in the knowledge of God. It's not to be despised. God tells us we have to learn. But it's also not to be left incomplete. We are not to be hearers only, but doers of the Word of God. And uh, let me speak to you on a personal level. If you wonder where your greatest need in growth in Christ is, 
I want you to find those commands. You probably already know where they are. But those commands or those passages that you find least enjoyable or even offensive, start there. Right? If there are commands in Scripture that you really don't particularly like, doctrines that you, I, I really can't agree with that, these are the areas that most urgently demand your attention. So pray over them until you get that resolved and put them into practice. But on the big picture, it's on the big picture now. There are things that you, as God's people, need to know. There are things you need to know. I was reading uh, Hosea this last week and was reminded that God's people perish for lack of knowledge. And they do. Knowledge, uh, doing things without knowledge leads to God's people being destroyed. It's the words of Hosea, not me. I mean, I, I, my family in Doketown, they run a lot of heavy equipment. And there are certain things you need to know about operating this heavy equipment. There are certain guards that have to go back in place. There are uh, important maintenance that needs to be done. There are places on the machine you don't want to stand or put your hand on. There are, there are spots in the, in the woods you wouldn't dare take a machine if you wanted to keep it. There are many other things you need to know about or steer clear of. And if you don't do them, you can literally be destroyed. Well, the same is true for a Christian. There are things you need to know or else you will put yourself in soul-destroying danger. There are places you cannot go. There are things to steer clear of and spiritual maintenance that has to be done or else you run the risk of making shipwreck of your faith. But it's not just enough to know. It has to be observed and put into practice. Right? Doing without knowing is foolish and will get you killed. Knowing without doing is hypocrisy and will get you condemned. You cannot have one without the other. I mean, just think how ridiculous it w would it be if, if I knew I'm not supposed to put my hand in this machine because if the machine turns on, it will grind my hand off. Now, I can know that, but it's not going to do me any good at all if I go around sticking my hand in the machine. I can know I'm not supposed to stand on the tracks when the machine is running, because that's dangerous. That goes without saying. But if I don't do it, and I stand on the tracks when the machine is going, knowing that's not going to do me any good. I'm in danger. Knowing and observing all that God has commanded us. You cannot have one without the other. So these two things really are, are the pillars of discipleship. The confession of Christ going to them, the baptism, those happen one time. But the teaching and the observing continues on for however long God gives His people on the earth. Growing in the knowledge of God and growing in the obedience to His Word. And if there is no concern for either of those things, so I really don't concern to grow in the knowledge of God. I really have no desire to obey Him. Then there is no disciple. There is no discipleship. And there is no great commission being carried out. We are to be as interested in edification as evangelism, in sanctification uh, as much as in conversion, uh, in church government as well as in preaching. There is no aspect of the teaching of Christ that we can afford to neglect and leave undone. I mean, things from the mundane... How do you drink a glass of water to the glory of God? Right, things to the, to the personal. How do I put to death this sin that has been making war on me for so long? To the family. How do I raise my children according to the word of God? 
probably the most important thing a parent can do. How to, how to preach, how to reach a lost world, how to govern a church, what does it mean to be a Christian. All of these things are to be informed and transformed by the Word of God. And then and only then, when churches are being planted, when seeds are being sown, and when disciples are being made, people being brought to maturity, then and only then can we say we have done the Great Commission. This task of teaching falls teaching in particular falls primarily on the leaders of the church. Not many of you should be teachers, for they will undergo the greater judgment. And the reason I point this out is, again, I want you to see the weight of the commission does not rest on your shoulders individually. It rests on all of our shoulders because it is a task and a mission given to each and every one of us, and we all have roles to play. Right? Not everyone is gifted in the same way, but everyone is gifted in some way. Very often our gifts are in matter of degrees. For example, we're not all called to give our life to missions. But we are called to bear witness to Christ. Not all are called to be teachers, but every parent is called to teach their children. When each member of the body of Christ is doing what God has called them to do, the Great Commission will move forward. And we'll look more at those roles next week. But I, I say this to remind you and to encourage you that not a single one of us shoulders this great and joyful privilege alone. We stand under it together for the glory of God, for the good of our future, and for the advancing of His kingdom. And though we bear much of the responsibility for the work in the carrying out of it, it is Christ Himself who always takes the heavy end. And his end is heavier by far than the light and easy yoke he lays on us. I remember, uh, well, you, you probably all remember having to carry something heavy. You and a friend, you're carrying it. Well, one of those ends, nobody wants to carry. The other one's light. You carry the light end, you really, you've got it easy, especially if you're going upstairs and they're down, uh, down underneath with the heavy end. Christ is always carrying the heavy end. And He carries it high enough that your end is always light. You've got a hand on it. There's work to be done. You're carrying it up with Him. But Christ is the one who makes it light. Verse 20 at the end. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This great commission, the world opposes it. The, the flesh drags its feet to do it. The devil makes war against it. And each of those things is too strong for even the best of us to overcome. But they are nothing when they come to face the Lord. And so he reminds us that he is our strength for the commission. The task really is impossible on its own. How many times have you looked at the world around you? You've looked at your own heart and said, I can't do this. Well, the reason is, you say that, is because you can't do it. The task is impossible, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He is with you always. The task is too great. It surpasses all of our strength combined. You think about it. Who can conquer darkness? Who can subject all the powers of the earth? 
Who by His breath can make the dead live again? And who, having made them alive, can keep them and defend them even though everything around them besieges their souls? Right? Not you and not me. And not just keep them, but lead them triumphantly. No one can do this except for the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is with us and He is with you until the end of time itself. He is with His church and He is with His people. I mean, never, never do you step out of bed in the morning and He is not there to strengthen you for the day. And never do you lay your head down at night and the Lord victorious does not guard your rest. So we may go with Christ with us always, all authority behind us to our city, to our nation, and to the ends of the earth, with the authority and arm of Christ upholding us and strengthening us and keeping us and assuring us until our mission is accomplished. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You are risen from the grave. Thank You that all of our sins have been put to rest in Christ. Thank You that You are glorious beyond measure. And that You will never leave us nor forsake us. That You are with us always, even to the end of the age. And Lord, I pray for those who, whose lives seem to be clouded. Lord, the sun always shines down on the sky, from the sky, but some days it's hidden by the clouds. Lord, I pray for those believers who seem to have You with them always hidden by the clouds. Help them to believe Your Word and that You are there whether they perceive You or not. And I pray for Your people that You would help us to be students and learners and doers of the Word. That Your Word would be what guides our decisions and our daily lives. I pray that we would be eager to be part of the church, part of the body of Christ. And if there's anyone who has not been baptized, that they would see the importance of it, Lord. And I pray that we would have good news on our lips and that we would really be able to believe, blessed are the feet that carry good news. Help us, Lord, to go in worship and in love for You and to be strengthened by the love that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Get glory for your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Amen.